Well, good morning. Good to be with you today. As the children go with Mrs. Cindy today and Miss Haley, we have Children's Church. It's okay with Mom and Dad. You guys can join them in the back. For the rest of us, if we turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you that we have this wonderful time that we can gather together and we can worship you. Um, worship is something that, Lord, you've given to us that takes place throughout the week. It's something that takes place in our work, in our play, with our family. Um, but we so appreciate this time that we can gather together as your people and that corporately we can worship you and gather together to to praise your name, to pray together, to, to read and to study your word. And so, Father, I pray that you continue to bless this time as we, as we worship you today. Why don't you fill us with your spirit as we turn to your word, which the spirit has given to us. Might he illuminate our minds. Might he fill us as we are transformed by what you have here. So please teach us what you ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we, we looked at one of the most difficult passages of First Peter, if not one of the most difficult passages of the entire New Testament, and we considered what Peter has to say about angels, about their judgment, and about, the, about Jesus proclaiming his victory over them. Ultimately, we, we considered the central idea, and we saw that, that we have much to rejoice over, don't, don't we? We have much to rejoice over as we consider that, that we, have, um, we have Jesus as our victory. There's much to rejoice over and little to fear because Jesus has accomplished victory over sin. He has achieved victory over death. And he has announced his victory over Satan and his fallen angels. Jesus has gone ahead of us into heaven. And, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, is, is again one of the most difficult passages to understand. However, the following passage that we find in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 in particular, might be one of the most difficult passages to preach. It's, it's not difficult because the content is hard to understand. It's not difficult because the message is confusing. But I find this passage difficult to preach because as an, uh, as an American pastor, I have not experienced much of what this passage addresses in the way that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world experience these things every day. As Peter continues his discussion on suffering, he, he comes to this section which um, a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ experience on a daily basis. Uh, many of them don't know if they'll live past today. And for Americans, we have quite a few freedoms that our, our persecution and our suffering is quite different from what many others around the world are, are experiencing. But, um, but I preached First Peter 3 last week because I believe that all Scripture is inspired. It comes from God's Spirit, and so likewise it's important that we immerse ourselves in First Peter chapter 4 because it too is a message that God wants us to hear, and he's given for us to hear even for those of us who don't experience persecution like many others do. Not in the same way, at least. 
But I believe that it's important for us as American Christians. I, I, it, it's vital that we develop a theology of suffering. And Peter is one of the best books that addresses this topic to a group of people who are elect exiles, to those who were living out a, a living hope in, in a hostile world. And so as we begin, I'd, I'd like to share with you three reasons why I think we need to have a sound theology of suffering and why this passage is so important for us in developing that. First of all, uh, God has promised to us, God has promised that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Mitch just read that for us. And this passage, this, this beautiful passage about how God's word is inspired and has been given to us for our, our benefit, for our growth, he also warns us and tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's, it's part of the Christian walk. It's something to expect. Persecution for some means death at the hands of those who hate you. Persecution for others, as for many of us for, who live in a land where we're free to practice our faith, it may simply mean that you, you just get some strange looks or called some names or treated a little differently at work. Around the world, and for some of you, persecution falls probably somewhere in between that, doesn't it? These two extremes. But nonetheless, God has prepared us in his word and he's told us that we need to expect suffering. The second reason that we need to develop a, a theology of suffering is we need to develop a, a sound theology of suffering because you do have family in Christ who are laying down their lives daily for Jesus. And we need to understand what God's word teaches us regarding their suffering and, and, um, and how we share in that pain. But third, I, I also believe that, that our circumstances... Our circumstances will and, and are changing. And I think it's important as, as believers that we recognize that, that tolerance toward those who follow Jesus is, is quickly becoming an endangered species. Uh, people are not as tolerant as they were uh, many years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, even just five years ago. It's changed drastically. Uh, it's interesting. I, I was uh, introduced to a reality TV uh, game show a few months ago by one of my children and and we watched a season that was filmed recently and afterward I went back and, and I was curious and I watched a season of that same show that had been filmed over 20 years earlier part of my fascination was to witness the the transitions that our culture has experienced during this the lifetime of my youngest children and one of the distinct changes that I observed as I was watching these two seasons that were from the same producers, the same people, but, but were spread out 20 years apart, was that um, 20 years ago, uh, even contestants on a reality TV show were, were able to openly talk about their faith in Jesus Christ. They, they were able to give God praise in front of an audience of 20 million people, and it, it wasn't really flinched at, it was just part of normal life. For many of these people in fact many of the people on this game show brought their bibles with them and openly read them during the middle of this reality tv show fast forward um, 20 years um, where what was once considered a good thing even on cbs 20 years later the content that kind of content is the first thing to go it's the first thing to hit the cutting room floor and, and those those tend to be the first individuals that are cast aside or, 
or are questioned or people look at them going, you're just strange. And they may not be dying for their faith, and certainly being kicked off a, a reality show is not the end of the world. But it just shows how life has changed, and even in our culture, and how perspectives towards Christians have changed. I've talked with a few of you about the word evangelical, which is part of our name as a church. And, and in 20 years, the word evangelical has, has changed its meaning. 20 years ago, we still referred to evangelical Christianity as, as, as those who believe that, that this word is true. And evangelical means that, that we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. We preach the good news. That's the, the heart of evangelical Christianity. Fast forward 20 years, and the perception of evangelical Christianity, probably even among most evangelicals, is that we're part of a political movement. And, and so the words are shifting, and culture is shifting, and people's perceptions towards Christianity and what we believe has drastically shifting. I, I believe that our circumstances will drastically change over the next 20 years, even more so. And it will not surprise me if some of you in this room will suffer to the point of shedding your blood within your lifetime because you follow the cause of Christ. And so we need a healthy theology of suffering. We need to be aware of, of how those things are changing and, and be fully aware of the promises that God has given to to us in his word. So we've started out with lots of application, okay, before we even looked at the text. I, so, so let's pursue God's view of suffering, and let's jump to the text and see what Peter tells us. First, I want you to consider with me five pieces of armor that God gives you to prepare for suffering in verses 1 through 6. It, Peter's going to continue his thought up to verse 11, which we'll look at in two weeks. We have um, the um, president of the our region uh, for our denomination is going to be preaching here next week. And, um, and then after that, we're going to look at the second half of this thought that, that Peter is going to carry out. Today, let's look, consider five pieces of armor that God gives you to prepare for suffering. Peter begins chapter 4 and says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And, and so, so Peter points back to the theology of the cross, which he introduced in chapter 3, verse 18, where he taught us that Christ also suffered once for sin. Do you remember this passage? We talked about how this is probably an ancient hymn that the people were, would have sung. And so Peter is quoting this song that the people that are receiving this letter, they would go, oh yeah, we, we sing that every Sunday. And so he quotes this, and then he builds his theology from this passage, from this song. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And if you remember, this was, uh, this was not only probably an ancient hymn that he was quoting, but he, he now brings us back to Christ's suffering. But in chapter 4, he puts you in the place of the one who suffers in the flesh. And with it, he gives you a command. He says, arm yourself. Now, first thought, when you hear that instruction, arm yourselves, you're preparing yourself for battle. It's a battle in which you are going to face persecution. You're going to face suffering. Again, some of you may suffer to the point of, that you shed your blood for the cause. And the first thing Peter tells you to do is arm yourselves. Can you think of some tools that might, you might want to bring to the party? Smith & Wesson? A bat? I mean, we're, we're talking Peter here, right? So why don't we just bring a sword to the Garden of Gethsemane? And 
Peter's done this, right? He's armed himself literally when he, he was, knew persecution was coming. And Jesus told him, this is what's going to happen. And so what did Peter do? I've got a sword. And he used it. He went for the guy's head. He only got an ear, but he sure went for it. Peter says, arm yourselves. And the word that he uses, it's only used here in the New Testament, but we do have a few examples of, in, of, of other uses in the Greek literature. Uh, Josephus, for example, when he was describing David and Goliath, he talked about how Saul brought all of his armor to David. And David, remember David put all that armor on, it was too big for him, and he wasn't trained to, to use that armor, he hadn't tested it. And so um, Josephus, as he's paraphrasing the story, says that, that David armored himself, not with Saul's breastplate, but with God himself. And that's the same word. In other ancient texts, it's, used, it's usually noted uh, about, bringing, about being prepared for battle. And so what great armor do we have that God has given to us to face suffering? We're, we're really familiar with passages like Ephesians chapter 6, where we put on the full armor of God. Well, this is the second passage that talks about armor, but particularly as it comes to suffering. The first and centerpiece of our armor that we have, Peter tells us, is a Christ-like attitude. We face suffering head-on with the same way of thinking that Jesus took to the cross. And with this breastplate, with this centerpiece of, of the armor, he's going he's gonna to build on that and share several other things that have to do with how we are to be prepared for the suffering that, that we know will come. Uh, Richard Wormbrandt, uh, a Romanian pastor, uh, many of you have read his story. He spent 14 years in Romanian prisons for his faith. In my opinion, he was much better equipped to preach this text than I am. But he expressed this text this way. He said, I have accepted this proposal. The, the proposal we're talking about here in this passage. I have accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross-bearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and of partnership with Jesus which brings gladness in tribulations, which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. What a picture. What an anticipation of the sufferings that Christ has for us. It's a different perspective on it, isn't it? The centerpiece of your armor as you follow Jesus into suffering is to have the same attitude as Christ. And so what was his attitude? What was the attitude that Jesus had as he went to the cross? Well, first of all, we know Jesus went willingly. He went to the cross with the joy of, of future glory set before him. And Christian, you are going to face tribulation. We're to prepare for it. You're going to face suffering. And whether it's just that your name is scoffed at or whether you are physically beaten or whether it, it means that you lose your job or your career or even some of your family members that despise you, you're going to face suffering. And so as a good soldier of the cross, Peter encourages us and he says, we go into the battle willing to give our life for the cause because we share the same vocation as our king. We are cross bearers. He continues in verse 1, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin. Now, this is a, a challenging verse, and Christian scholars have offered several ideas as to what it means. What does it mean that the person who suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin? And um, first of all, Peter's not saying that, that those who endure suffering never sin again. Can we agree on that? Yeah. I mean, mo- most of us have suffered in one form or another, and we still struggle with sin. So if that's what he's teaching, we're all in big trouble, right? Um, he's not talking about Jesus because Jesus never sinned in the first place. And so if we're creating a scenario where Jesus sinned and then he suffered and now he doesn't sin anymore, we're, we're in bad theological camp, right? Uh, and so that's not what he's talking about either. Um, honestly, I, I, it's a challenging passage, and I'm not completely sure, but I'll just present what I think are probably two of the best views on this. Uh, the first view basically takes the phrase generally, uh, generally of Christians, that saying that whoever suffered has ceased from sin, and, and they propose that this simply pointing to Christians who demonstrate that they are to be done with sin because they are willing to suffer. And ultimately, they will enjoy being free from sin as part of our eternal reward. And, and honestly, the view has merits. Uh, it's theologically sound. There's no heresy here like the, the last view. But, um, but there's another alternative that may be closer to what Peter meant. The second view takes this phrase, and it proposes that, that God uses suffering in our lives as a part of our sanctification. Jewish legalists saw suffering quite differently than that, didn't they? In, in Jesus' day, if, if you were suffering, what was an indication of? It was an indication of sin. In fact, the disciples were susceptible to this line of thinking, weren't they? Do you remember a passage in the, the Gospels where this happened? The disciples came to Jesus, and they saw a blind man. And what they ask? Who sinned? Did this man sin, or was it his parents that caused him to be born blind? Kind of interesting, right? And so they wondered if this blind man's parents were the ones who sinned, or whether it was him. But now Peter's perspective has flipped since that time, and, and he no longer sees suffering as evidence of sin, but instead, Jesus taught, and Peter now understands and teaches, that suffering is evidence of a transformed life. Neither way, that's the second piece of our armor, the second piece of our armor we have as we encounter suffering is a transformed life. When you look at the, what Christ has done in you and how the Spirit has changed you, when you face suffering, it's evidence to you that look, what God has done in my life, that I would be considered to, to be blessed in this way, that I get to partake in the sufferings of Jesus. I get to suffer with him. In the same way, in similar ways. A transformed life. And he goes on, verse 2, to further describe this. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so you see, when, when you repented of your sin, and when you turned to Jesus, and, and, and you believed in what he did on the cross for you, you became a new person in Jesus Christ. Though we still struggle with the sin nature, we no longer live for our human passions because we have been delivered from the power of sin. We, we're no longer obligated to follow sin. It's no longer your master. And instead, you serve God and you live for his will. And then when you suffer for doing good, 
rather than being evidence that you sinned in some way, it is rather evidence of the transformed life which Jesus has brought about in you. And so he actually uses your suffering to demonstrate your transformed life, and then he encourages you, and he even facilitates a righteous life because of that suffering itself. And so Peter writes as he does. But the third piece of armor that comes with having Christ's way of thinking is knowing that the way of the world is past. The way of the world in your life is past. Uh, it's enough, Peter says. It, it's enough. It's sufficient. Um, he begins with verse 3 with this word, it suffices. Uh, it's the same word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It's the same word that if we go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus uses it there when, when um, he tells people, he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't, don't worry about what tomorrow is going to bring. Why, why shouldn't you worry about what tomorrow brings? Tomorrow has enough problems. What's that? Today has enough problems of its own. Today has enough trouble of its own. You don't need to worry about tomorrow too. Uh, and, and he says, today has enough problems of its own. And then he says this, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's the same word. In other words, each day has enough of its own mess for you to worry about. So why are you being worried about tomorrow? It doesn't help at all. Sufficient is the day, for the day is its own trouble. And so that's the word that Peter uses here, sufficient. It's enough. The way that you used to live when you followed the way of the world is in the past. It's done. It's sufficient. It's enough. Now, now, there's a temptation that comes once in a while, isn't there? We all face it in different ways. And, and what, what's that temptation look like? One more time. You, you ever feel that? Just, just one more time with this sin that I enjoy so much. One, once, once more. It, it wouldn't hurt, would it? How about one more party? just get plastered one more time like I did in high school. Let's just indulge in one more one-night stand. I've, I've done so many. What would one more hurt? And Peter says, it's enough. I, I appreciate how John Piper, Piper expressed this passage in, in, his, in his preaching. He said, this is a simple and remarkable statement. The time already passed is sufficient for sin. It's enough. So don't do any more. Suffer if you must, but don't do any more sin. Arm yourself with this thought, he continues. Any amount of past sinning is enough. If you sinned a little before you were converted, it's enough. If you send a lot, and for many years before your conversion, it's enough. You can never sin so little that you could say, I need some more time to sin. How many people say, I know I need to get right with God and make a break with sin, but just a little more time, a little more time with sin. And Peter says, arm yourselves with this thought, the time you've spent sinning is sufficient. 
make the break. Choose the will of God and suffer for it if you must. Listen to how Peter describes it in verses 3 and 4. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and, and they malign you. And so there's, there's where the suffering comes back into the passage. Um, they ask, what do you mean you won't come to the party? You've always partied with us. What's changed? What do you mean you can't? Are you better than us now? They malign you. And Peter says, it's enough. You don't need one more. You don't need a little bit more time. It's sufficient. Whether it was little, whether it was a lot. Verse 5 is a follow-up to this, and it's your fourth piece of armor. Know that God is the judge. Whatever suffering that you endure, Peter shows us that vengeance is, is not your problem. Getting even is not your concern. Because, because when you suffer, it, it hurts, doesn't it? Maybe it's a family member. And they turn on you. You're following Christ. You've chosen a different lifestyle. You can't wait to tell them about this transformation that God has brought about in you. And you share the gospel and they say, so you're better than we are now? And they start mistreating you. Jesus warned us. He said, some of us will face even hatred from our own family. That following Jesus sometimes means dividing brother against brother, father against son. And it hurts. Your friends look at you differently. Your co-workers treat you differently. But getting even is not our concern. It's not my problem to say, what happens to them now? Because God's going to sort it out. In Christ, eternity is yours. Without Christ, his adversaries will stand before his throne and they will give an account. And so Peter goes on and says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And, and so we go into suffering knowing that, that no matter what happens and no matter horrible a person is to you, how ma no matter how much they hate you and make your life miserable, even if they take your life, a day is coming when all those who remain alive and all those who have died in the past are going to stand before their creator. And he will be their judge. Isn't there great comfort in knowing that it's outside of your control? That judgment is outside of your responsibility? That you can, you can let it go. And when you face that persecution, when you're under suffering, it's not your problem as to what happens to that person. God is in control. He is the judge. And he's the perfect judge. It's out of your responsibility to decide who pays for what. And when Jesus was on the cross, what was his way of thinking? That's what we're talking about today, right? Thinking like Jesus thought. How did Jesus think on the cross towards those who crucified him? Forgive them. They, they know not what they do. He, he entrusted himself to his Father in heaven who rightfully judges. And then we see the final piece of armor is tied to the fourth. They're like a, a pair of gloves where, where one isn't worn without the other. 
Number four, God is the judge. But number five, the gospel. The, the beauty of our transformed life is that like Jesus, we learn to love our enemies. And like Jesus on the cross, we pray for those who persecute us. We are reviled, but we, are not, we do not revile in return. We are mistreated. We turn the other cheek. We're attacked. But in return for our wounds, we share the good news with our persecutors. God is the judge. But we also believe that Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath. We believe that the just became the justifier. And, and so we also turn to those who wrong us and we tell them about the Christ who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that God might also bring them to God the same way that he brought you. In verse 6, he says, For this is why the gospel was preached. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the same way God does. Verse 6 is also a verse that scholars have discussed a lot about, but I think Peter is simply referring to, to those who have heard the gospel in the past. I, I know one of the interpretations is to tie this to the passage we looked at last week. Remember we talked about spirits in prison that Jesus went and preached to them? And so some have taken that verse, which they didn't understand, and they think verse 6 in chapter 4, which they don't understand, they said, well, these must be the same thing. And so the people that Jesus preached to in chapter 3 must be the dead individuals that are being preached to in verse 6 but I, I think there's two different things going on here so quite simply peter's just referring to those who have heard the gospel during their lifetime sometime in the past but they're but they're now dead they've passed away and they either responded to the gospel and they trusted jesus christ who died on the cross for their sins or they rejected jesus christ as their savior and every man and woman must choose christ or they must choose their sin. Now, our responsibility is what? We share the good news. We share the good news with our persecutors. We love those who declare themselves our enemies. And this is the attitude of Christ. Well, we began today with an application. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> We began today with some application, but let me just bring us back to it. As Christian Americans, I think that few of us truly grasp what it means to suffer for Christ in the way that, that many of our brothers and sisters around the world do every day. We, we encounter persecution. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't, okay? Pete, Paul promised us, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And, and I think each one of us face persecution and suffering in different ways um but oftentimes not in the same way that so many of our brothers in christ are suffering around the world but we need to develop a theology of suffering because in one form or another we should expect this suffering we should expect persecution we also need to understand because of our christian family around the world that are giving their lives for the faith and we need a theology of suffering because times are changing and the tide may soon drastically change the other, go the other direction. But my friends, your God has not left you unprepared. 
He's not left you floundering so that when it comes, you're left there shocked and don't know what to do. With Christ before you, we have the ability to arm ourselves. And we need to be doing that today, each one of us. As we encounter the Christian life, suffering or no suffering on a daily basis, with Christ before you, we have the ability to arm ourselves today with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. We we face suffering with a Christ-like attitude. We're encouraged by transformed lives. We move forward knowing that the way of the world is in the past. We take comfort knowing that God is the judge. And then we share the good news, even with the very ones who persecute us. Again, because we are elect exiles. We're elect exiles who share the mind of Christ. And it is our privilege. And Paul has been, Peter, excuse me, I can't remember who's writing this letter. Um, Peter has been driving it home ever since chapter 1 that it is our privilege to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let us serve him together. Father in heaven, we come before you and we are so grateful for your love for us. We're so grateful for the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross. Father, today I'm grateful that you allow us to partake in suffering with Jesus Christ. Lord, I I know that that I have not begun to suffer as many others have. But in the ways that we have, we we thank you that we have this. We, We thank you that you've encouraged us to a different perspective regarding suffering. That it's not something that we run away from. It's not something that we cower from. It's not something that we fear. But Father, thank you for giving us a perspective towards suffering that we know that this is something that you've given to us that grows us, that, that, that helps in our sanctification, that draws us nearer to, our, to yourself. And it shows us that we are in you. And it's evidence of our transformed life. As we go out from here, Father, I pray that you would give us boldness. I pray that we would preach the gospel to those that we know because they are in need of the good news. They are going to an eternity in which they will face you as their judge because they are at war with you. So, Father, please give us a perspective towards our neighbors and our family members, towards our co-workers and classmates who need Jesus Christ today. And so whether they spit in our face or they laugh and call us names or whether they kill us, might we go into it gladly with joy knowing that we follow Jesus Christ and we share his vocation.